And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, that Chinese spy balloon, a harbinger of something bad on the cybersecurity front? Plus, the Defense Innovation Unit says it's positively sailing into its eighth year in business. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the federal acquisition community has bemoaned the shrinking small business industrial base for much of the past decade. But instead of just playing lip service to the importance of small business, the engine that runs the economy, the Biden administration is equipping agencies with two new tools to expand the supplier base. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now with the latest. And Jason, the Biden administration has made small business a centerpiece in a lot of ways. What's the latest now from OMB? Tom, there's two things that are going on from OMB. I think the first is they they are really saying, we know that there's a problem in the small business community and we want to try to help fix it. And, you know, Tom, we've heard this from you and me go back to the Clinton administration. We know they tried it. The Bush administration, George W. Bush tried it. The Obama administration tried it. The Trump administration tried it. They all talked about the importance of small businesses, yet very few have found a lot of luck in really addressing the small business industrial base. And what we've seen over the last 10 years, since 2010, it's the number of prime contractors have dropped by half. And this comes from a new set of data from this firm called HireGov. They reported just earlier uh, in February 13th that despite firms winning $159 billion in federal contracts in 2022, the number of small businesses owned by women and many minority groups saw a flat or declining share of contracts. And Tom, if you just look at the raw numbers, it went from something like 120,000 small businesses winning contracts in 2010 down to in 2022, so 12 years later, just under 60,000. And I think not only the Biden administration, but the Defense Department, GSA, SBA, a bunch of agencies are recognizing this problem. So the question is, how do you solve it? And what OMB did was they released a memo last week. We're not just going to talk, but here's two new tools to really start addressing these challenges. The first is a supplier-based dashboard, and that's going to help agencies track the total number of companies in their supply chain, as well as the total number within specific sectors of their supply chain. The second tool they released is something called a procurement equity tool. And this is, again, helping contracting officers, acquisition workers better identify potential new entrants in specific geographical regions in the country. And this goes back to the Biden administration's goal to really drive equity and diversity in federal acquisition. Has it come up that perhaps project labor agreements, the complexity of procurement rules, new rules for reporting what your CO2 emissions are, yours and your customers, might be keeping businesses away from federal contracting in the first place? Those things add the federal acquisition regulations, the complexity there, add the fact that getting a contract goes on and the profit margins are are small. All those definitely play a role into this challenge. And I I think while the administration does not kind of address those issues in their memo or, or there's these new tools, I think recognizing that these challenges are just building and building and building and have been building on each other for the last decade plus, they figured it's not enough just to tell contracting officers and and agencies to do more, but give them something that they actually can do more with and really try to identify, hey, company X, you are in this hub zone in Detroit. We 
you know, we are looking for people who provide your type of service. Hey, you should maybe bid on this contract. And, and again, it's more than just new tools. There's this interagency effort with SBA, the Commerce Department's Minority Business Development Agency, GSA, and many others to really look at this data and really attract new entrants and as well as uh, try to attract people who maybe haven't really won too many contracts but are registered in the sam.gov database sure yeah there's a lot of efforts have been ongoing even the defense innovation unit that we'll hear from next has been partially working part of its mission to help get new non-traditional but also small businesses into that dib that is as you mentioned is shrinking and category management this has been an effort now spanning a couple of administrations that is often given some of the blame for a decline in small business participation what's going on there You're absolutely right. And the administration has recognized that. And one of the things they said early on, this is back in June 2021, is to say, hey, do not put category management above small business contracting. In fact, the Defense Department just issued a memo about a a month ago reiterating the, the administration's move to say, hey, category management is important, but not at the uh, not to hurt small businesses. But Tom, we, I go back to, again, another report from the Women's Chamber of Commerce who found that the category management has has led to this drop in small business vendors participating. Since 2017, they reported that uh, there's a 24% decrease with women-owned suppliers dropping by 22% and even service-disabled veteran-owned suppliers dipping by more than 17%. In the memo from OMB Deputy Director for Management, Jason Miller, he writes about that, hey, we recognize that this has been a problem. And one of the things that they're going to do is establish government-wide priorities for supply chain strengthening. And they will consider categories of common spend under category management for priority attention, particularly, he writes, if analysis undertaken or presented between category managers indicates that small businesses are underrepresented in each of these common categories or subcategories. And, and that, that includes things like, Tom, uh, medical supplies, construction facilities management, technology, professional services, you know, stuff that is you can find in the commercial sector. We're not talking about building tanks and airplanes sure. and, and bombs or spacecraft even. We really are talking about the, the usual stuff that you know a lot of commercial sector buys as well as the government. And I think that that OMB memo from that Jason Miller you mentioned is close to the DOD memo which said that agencies can get small business contracting credit even if they use non-category management vendors. They can get category management credit if they use non-category management small businesses. There's a tiered situation where they're saying, okay, at tier one, it's this. At tier two, there's that. And you're correct, Tom. They're really pursuing, hey, we want more uh, agencies to look at small business contracting. And we don't, again, don't want these efforts around category management, best-in-class contracts, BICs, which, Tom, you know I could go off on that for quite a while on, just an awful name. They're trying to make it easier to, if you bring on a small business contractor, we don't want to discard the fact that this is a a good move for the government, a good move for the society and the nation. This being a long-term effort, we presume that this is something that has legs, because as you mentioned, every administration wants to promote small business. You have to have metrics. You don't change something merely by measuring it. What's OMB talking to agencies about measuring? These databases that need to be, if you will, populated with data, they have to start, okay, what's where that data is going to come from? And they're going to focus on, you know, Federal Procurement Data System, FPDS, but they're also going to look at the SAM.gov. Tom, I didn't know this in the memo, highlights is 75% of all companies who are registered in SAM.gov don't apply for or win federal contracts. 
And they're saying, hey, there's a big opening here that we can kind of, hey, people who are already registered or already doing business or want to do business, at least with the government, they're available. So how do we kind of address them? So what they're going to do through these new databases, and let me start with the new supplier database, they're going to ask agencies to track the number of entities that have done business with the agency during the prior fiscal year, the breakdown of entities, new entrants, recent entrants, established vendors. And in fact, they're putting new definitions around new entrants and recent entrants. And then they're also going to break down the entities by size, socioeconomic status, service stable veteran, small disadvantaged business and the like. And then they're going to track those awards and say, okay, how did we do in 2023? How are we going to do in 2024? How do we push forward in a supplier database? Other data they're going to include includes the number of awards and dollars awarded to entities, as well as by product service code, again, category management spending category, and the NAICS code. So they're really trying to get into that data to say it's not just numbers of awards, but where are they, what are they doing, and how much. Right. And all of this ought to be available in an automated fashion, right? I mean, all this data is captured now, right? And I think that's why they can do this today versus maybe 5, 10, 20 years ago, they really would struggle to capture this data. So much of it, the technology is better, the data is better, the understanding of how to use data, the tools around data is so much better. And I think, Tom, that, that's a real key piece here that a lot of the past administrations have tried things, but because the technology and the data have caught up to what they really want to do, I think that's the perfect storm is coming together to allow agencies to do more with small businesses. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And check out his latest story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Defense Innovation Unit says it's positively sailing into its eighth year in business. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The small but potent Defense Innovation Unit has reached stride as it enters its eighth year in business. Among other activities, the DIU uses a technique known as Other Transaction Authority to quickly get new technology prototypes built for military purposes. Last year, those awards reached a billion dollars. Here with this and other highlights in its latest annual report, Acting DIU Director Mike Madsen. Mr. Madsen, good to have you with us. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thrilled to be here and happy to talk about our annual report. Thanks for having me. And before we get to the numbers and the acquisitions, transactions, give us a sense of some of the exciting technologies that were actually realized into prototype or into production in the past year via DIU. You bet, Tom. Uh, so we transitioned 17 projects this year, which is a record for us. And some of the exciting ones are things like what we call peacetime indications and warning, which is leveraging uh, commercial technology is what we do largely. But in this case, that technology is commercially available overhead satellite imagery. There's a growing market for that in the commercial sector. Real estate developers are interested in persistent overhead imagery to look at parking lots with cars, uh, to make sure the real estate is being used most effectively, or futures traders want to see the level of resources in tanks around the world for their positioning. But what we use it for is we use it for uh, real-time situational awareness uh, around the world where we have persistent capability to do that. 
Another very exciting one that we transitioned this year is called the Rapid Assessment of the Threat Environment. And this is incredibly powerful because it was a project that was wrapping up at the end of 2019. And this was a project using wearables and AI to be able to detect infectious diseases. So think um, pre-COVID. So 2019, that was things like the flu, where it would be important for a commander to know infection rates before it spread through uh, a large organization. So you could isolate those folks. Well, we were able to pivot very, very quickly in 2020 and apply this to COVID. And we got to the point where we were able to identify folks that were COVID positive 48 hours before testing and 48 hours before symptom onset. So if you think of the power of that from a readiness perspective, we're able to isolate those folks and limit the infection flowing through uh, large organizations. That one's really a big contribution to readiness, I would say. Absolutely. You're able to isolate folks and limit the spreading of infectious diseases through a squadron, a division, etc., to make sure you, you uh, maintain the highest levels of readiness. But no magic death ray that can take out an entire enemy platoon yet. Right. No, no, nothing like that. That's still uh, that's still under wraps. <laughs> All right. And I wanted to talk about the OTAs, uh, that, that billion dollar figure. Is that cumulative in the life of DIU or is that just the last year? Uh, no, that's cumulative. Backing up for a little bit of context, you're exactly sure. right. DIU uses other transaction authority, which is a fully congressionally authorized way to procure goods and services for the department. And what we do is we leverage our DOD partners funding. So they have skin in the game when we do their prototypes so that we know there's a clear path to production on the backside so we can get that technology into the hands of the men and women in uniform. But also for our commercial partners, it's a path to recurring revenue, which is important to them, and increase that connective tissue between government and the private sector. And so that $1.2 billion exactly right is cumulative over the life of DIU uh, since we started in 2016. And I think maybe the lesser known part of DIU is that you also can do production contracts to move those innovations that were maybe acquired initially under the OTA to production level and talk about some of the highlights of the past year that moved from prototype to production. Well, and that's the power of the other transaction authority, Tom, that you mentioned before, is our authority to operate allows us to move from prototype to production without recompeting, provided that the prototype was awarded under competitive circumstances. And we developed a competitive commercial solutions opening process that meets that competitive requirement. Now, our commercial solutions opening, or CSO, it increases transparency, it increases competition for our DOD partners so we can continue to drive the cost down and be as effective and efficient as possible. But what it also does is it lowers barriers to entry to the defense marketplace for some of those non-traditional companies. We simplify the process, uh, we make it easier, we make it cheaper. We we recognize the opportunity cost just to participate in the defense marketplace for some of these non-traditional. So all of that is designed to increase the participation rate. We're speaking with Mike Madsen. He is acting director of the Defense Innovation Unit. And I wanted to ask about, just to take an aside here for a moment, there was a lot of commercial support to Ukraine that you are reporting in the past year as part of the annual report, pretty high up in there. Just give us a highlight there. Well, Ukraine is a fantastic opportunity to watch us how uh, dual-use technology is integrated into warfighting. And I think it's pretty clear that it's not going to be the first one that develops this technology, but the way that we integrate it is going to lead to success on the battlefield. So we've been able to uh, observe a couple of things. A few lessons we've learned is, number one, uh, democratization of this technology. The dual-use commercial technology, it's out there. It's widely available. 
we don't get a vote in how our adversaries are going to use it. So we need to make sure we're evaluating it real time and pulling it in and making that minor customization, proving through prototyping before our adversaries can. We also need to identify those technologies that we want to protect much more closely. Another lesson learned is, uh, and I used overhead imagery, I'll use that example again, uh, the classification level. So that overhead imagery that's widely available now is not classified, so it can be put out to the world. And as we saw in Ukraine, that commercially available overhead imagery was available to be broadcast to the world to counter Russian narratives by uh, photographic evidence showing what's really happening on the ground instead of something that they were trying to uh, construct or engineer. Yeah, so the companies that provided through you to Ukraine this remote sensing and observability, let's say, platforms that really, I guess, leveraged the power that they could get out of the weapon systems that we shipped to them. They could aim at where the bad people were. Right, exactly. That integration of the dual-use technology. Now, for us, we have not provided anything directly to uh, Ukraine. We work with our uh, global combatant commanders, our regional combatant commanders. So we work with UCOM, very closely with UCOM there. But what's interesting for us to watch is that vendors are selling direct to the Ukrainian government uh, with some of those capabilities. Right. And that's one of the complications that a lot of independent DOD agencies face not a challenge, but maybe it's challenging, is that so much happens through the combatant commands, which are joint, and somehow you have to work in what you're doing with what the combatant commands need, and it gets to be a little bit of a complicated shopping mall, if you will. Right. And in fact, our transition rate is about 50%. A couple of years ago, we took a look at our transition rate and what we needed to do to increase it. It was about 35%. And one of the things we found and one of the outcomes was we developed a defense engagement team that is focused on engaging with our DOD partners. We focus on the services agencies, but also we engage with the combatant commands uh, because that's where the requirements are generated. That's where the rubber meets the road. The war fighting needs are really identified there and then passed back to the services for the organized training equip function. So we engage everywhere we can to make sure that we are in a position to articulate the state of the art of the commercial technology and how it might help solve some DOD problems. And do the requirements for what you might want to issue an OTA and discover some innovation, do they come from the combatant commands or do they come from the individual forces? Well, we found a successful project has three elements. We need an end user that understands the problem and is going to use it. We need programmatic support and we need command support. And so what we do is then we take that, we work with that vertical, and we get away from a long, arduous requirements document and go to a simply stated problem statement. Now, the problem that we put out to our commercial partners to come up with innovative solutions is rooted in uh, the requirements of the service, but we simplify it. We take out the Pentagon jargon, we take out the acronyms, and we put it in a language that our commercial partners understand and can respond to. And do you ever get into like very small issues, requirements that maybe an individual soldier or some unit or you know a pilot identified. If we enlarge, I'm thinking of like in World War II, some countries needed bigger trigger guards on pistols so you could get your hand through there with a glove on, that kind of thing. Does it ever get that fine-grained? We do look for any problems that the end users are having, but as we go through a very deliberate process, it's called our project decision board. It's the process by which we take on projects. And we're at the point now where we can take on some of those one-off projects, but largely we look for those challenges that can scale across the department, across platforms, across services, 
A couple examples I'll give. We completed a project uh, using AI. It's predictive maintenance as uh, the name of the project that we took on. It started with the Air Force. Uh, and again, if you think about it, it's using AI to predict uh, maintenance failures on uh, parts of uh, very complex machines with many moving pieces and parts. And we started with the Air Force. We took it to production with the Air Force. And then we looked at the Army and the Navy and we said, geez, I bet there are probably some challenges here we could solve. So then we engaged with the Army and the Navy to scale that across those platforms, not only the ones that can fly in the Army, but also those wheeled vehicles as well. Those are the projects we look for. Those are the home runs, as we call them. But that's not to say we won't take on some of the uh, one-off projects as well. Right. Something small could have enterprise-wide application, like a better shoelace or something. And outsized impact. Exactly right. And if you would just discuss the issue of, we've talked about dual-use technologies from small and large companies. And this is in the context of the shrinking small business sector of the defense industrial base. I guess the large businesses are shrinking too in terms of numbers of companies. Is it a strategy of DIU to help increase that or is that a byproduct of what you do or do you think about that? Well, what we look for is the non-traditional companies. And in fact, our authority to operate specifically calls out non-traditional companies. But there's also provisions for us to partner with the traditional companies, systems integrators. And, and look, the modernization of the department is going to take all players at all strata. But what we are very excited about is that we have been able to bring in a large number of non-traditional companies as well as first-time vendors. So these are vendors that have evaluated the, what is it now, $820 billion defense market marketplace, previously said, no, thanks. We have a robust commercial consumer base, so we don't necessarily need to bring our technology to you. We've been able to change their minds, show them that it's not complex. There is a a path that we can illuminate to the defense marketplace. They've been able to bring that technology and get it in the hands of the men and women in uniform. Sounds like there's an orientation toward trying to find small, but non-traditional doesn't have to be small. I mean, maybe something at Procter & Gamble, which is not what you think of. I just made that up as a defense supplier, but it's non-traditional in the sense that it's not Lockheed or General Dynamics. Exactly right. We don't focus on the, the size of the company, but rather the, the non-traditional and the technology. Uh, in fact, I think three quarters of the companies that we have awarded contracts to have been small business, not necessarily by design, but just sometimes that's where the non-traditional and the agility lies. Now, we've been able to successfully partner, like I said, with some of the traditional companies for that scale-up capability that I mentioned where scaling, adoption, uh, that's really what we're looking at to get that technology into DOD. And what's going to happen in fiscal 2023? We're well into it, but how are things going? Oh, it's great. It's such a fantastic time. We got in 23, we got an increase in our budget. So that was very exciting. That tells me we're showing value to our important stakeholders. We've also increased the number of projects and we've seen an increase in the number of submissions. So that tells me we've shown value to both our defense partners as well as our commercial partners. You know, but if you think of of where we started and where we're going, you know, in our early days, we were just trying to prove out the concept. We've been able to prove that out. So then we moved the goalpost and said, all right, let's focus on transition. And we've been able to get to 50%. I've challenged the team to continue to drive that higher. But then we started looking at, well, what's our adoption rate of those transitions? Uh, So let's move the goalpost again and, and look to make sure we're scaling as widely as possible. So as we look out to 23, we're going to keep doing our core mission, which is, again, that technology in the DoD. But we're going to do it by focusing a little bit earlier with the program offices so that we're able to very clearly describe to them the state of the art of the uh, commercial technology and where it might fit into some of the solutions that they're looking at. 
so the valleys of death will have bridges. I love that you used valleys of death. Too often we hear one single, all-encompassing valley, but we've been able to identify multiple valleys at multiple stages of development. DIU is made up of three sub-organizations that targets some of those valleys at various development points in the uh, the coming. So thank you for using the plural of that, Tom. I appreciate it. All right. Mike Madsen is Acting Director of the Defense Innovation Unit. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you. Enjoyed the conversation. We'll post this interview along with a link to that annual report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Innovate your listening. Subscribe to the podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Still to come, the contractor carbon emissions reporting rule. Is it setting up companies for failure? But first, that Chinese spy balloon, a harbinger of something bad on the cybersecurity front? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A cybersecurity catastrophe could be brewing. That's according to my next guest, who points to several signs out there that don't bode well for critical data or critical infrastructure. Here with her reading of the tea leaves, the chief legal officer at quantum computing software vendor Quantinuum, Kanaya Konkoli Tege. Ms. Tege, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be here. And we should qualify you a little bit because we don't usually have lawyers talking about cybersecurity, but you have worked in the government and you are very close to policy in the job that you have. Maybe just tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks for the introduction. So I actually started my career at Department of the Interior working on a class action litigation called Cobell. And what's interesting about that case is it actually required the U.S. Department of the Interior to disconnect itself from the Internet. I remember that case. (laughs) So when I started, my job was to work with the various bureaus and offices to understand their cybersecurity architecture and present it before the special master monitor to get them reconnected, which at the time, this was in 2003, 2004, cybersecurity and understanding kind of cybersecurity architecture and those types of issues weren't really well known. And certainly not by someone who went to law school and thought they were going to just be doing litigation. So I had a crash course in trying to understand cybersecurity architecture. At the time, it was defense and depth strategies. Obviously, that's become now zero trust, but really had a, like I said, a crash course in understanding cybersecurity. Spent a number of years working on that and then moved over to work for Department of Energy on some of their litigation associated with the closure of the various Manhattan Project sites around the country. All right. So now you are with a quantum company and you are looking at signs in the economy, in developments that are happening that could mean a major critical infrastructure cyber attack is in the offing. What are you seeing? What are your dots that you're connecting here? What's really happening? So in the quantum computing industry, there's kind of two schools of thought. The first one is around the development of the hardware. There's a lot of opportunity associated with the hardware and what it can do as it continues to scale. The biggest risk associated with quantum computing is around what's known as Shor's algorithm, which eventually, and I do mean eventually, quantum computers will allow for the decryption of public key encryption. So, Right. We're only at about 150 qubits at this point, but they've got to get to thousands before it can really crack that stuff in a few days. Exactly. And many people think that's years, maybe decades away. Why should we care? 
Well, for a couple of reasons. The first reason we should care is because understanding cybersecurity architecture and what you have as a company or as the U.S. government is really complicated. In many, many cases, you know, the architecture itself is built layer upon layer upon layer. So really understanding what you have and where your vulnerabilities exist, that is no small feat. The second piece really comes down to more of that policy issue, and it is around what I'll call the consequences of hype around breaking encryption. And what I mean in that respect is, as you see more and more news articles and statements by various governments about the advancement of their ability to crack encryption, most recently, China has issued two different papers claiming they've been able to do this, which I would say I think the industry writ large dismisses those claims, at least in large part. But what that starts to do is really escalate some of the tensions within particularly the U.S. government, but really governments around the world. And what that can result in is overregulation and really the inability for these businesses and these groups to be able to scale because there's just not enough talent that sits in the United States. So the more controls that exist, the harder it is to hire, the more complicated it is to grow or scale your supply chain. And so then it results in a contraction of the actual ecosystem. We're speaking with Kanaya Konkoli-Tege. She is the chief legal officer at the quantum computer software vendor Quantinuum. And just to go back to something you mentioned earlier, that people could amass data now and encrypt it later, let me just play devil's advocate for a minute. If they did, by the time this decryption capability comes about, that data would be a decade or a couple decades old. So at that point in the future, when there are quantum-resistant algorithms out there working, would it really matter if the enemies could decrypt something that's 20 years old? I think that is a great question and something that a lot of people grapple with. My answer is absolutely yes. And I would say, how many people have changed their bank accounts in 20 years? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But certainly in the nuclear industry and in the defense industry and a lot of the critical infrastructure industry, 20 years is not a long time. And so data that's being taken today may still be relevant, even if it isn't from a personal perspective. It certainly is for the critical infrastructure and for the, you know, the safety and security of, of our country. Yes. Well, like I'll counter my own argument by asking, you know, a company like this FTX debacle. That was 10 years in the brewing, and so mm-hmm. you would want to look at data, I'm sure they are, that goes back to the founding of it, which I think is about 10 years. So maybe mm-hmm. maybe things do remain relevant long after they are on your active drives and have been moved to optical. Certainly, yes, absolutely. So given the step-by-step approach of quantum, and you know, NIST does have those algorithms out that are the architecture for algorithms that are quantum resistant, what should chief information security officers and people related to this be doing now, different from what they're doing now, I mean, zero trust and so forth, because of the quantum threat out there? So what we recommend is to really look at your encryption technologies, make sure you understand who your vendors are, where your keys are coming from, who's managing your keys and your what we call the, the key and the, the algorithm sits in what we like to refer to in layman's terms as the padlock, right? So if you think of your padlock, your key, and then the management of both, really understanding that full cycle and what's happening. It is in the, the padlock, that algorithm set that will need to change 
We also argued that the keys themselves need to change from a deterministic set, which are produced today, into a non-deterministic key to be generated for the encryption technologies. Because classical computing and quantum computing will exist side by side for the foreseeable future because quantum doesn't actually solve every problem in computing. It's not like everybody will have a supercomputer. And so the crossbreeding, I guess you will, or an algorithm that's safe from quantum could still be subject to classical decryption. So you've got to look at it from both angles, correct? Correct. It could. The other piece I would say is what's emerging in the industry today is the concept of hybridization where quantum computers are being connected to supercomputers and looking at the ability to distribute the algorithm based on or portions of the algorithm to what system could be run better. What that means is a continuous advancement. And I I raise that to say it's important to think about the ability of these hybridization systems to do greater and greater problem sets than what maybe we would have thought they could do even five years ago. So that's where CISOs and others really want to pay attention to how the industry is advancing and how much more you're able to do with, say, less qubits. Right. It really multiplies the measures they're going to need to have in place then, doesn't it? Having two systems of computing operating side by side or even, as you suggest, in tandem. Mm -hmm. It certainly could. And now's the time to get started, huh? Absolutely. Kenaya Konkoli-Tege is general counsel at Quantinuum. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the contractor carbon emissions reporting rule. Is it setting up companies for failure? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. After a busy start to the 118th session, Congress is on recess this week. Members are contemplating a number of important issues, though. Besides the debt limit, they've got some crucial reauthorizations ahead. We get details from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And, yeah, quick recess for, I guess, the President's Day holiday week. And uh, what what's top of mind when they do get back? Well, we can start with the debt limit and no real progress so far, is there? No real progress. Um, there was a discussion a couple of weeks ago between President Joe Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who are going to be key to getting out of this. Uh, we did have an important CBO report come out last week where they said that the government's ability to operate using extraordinary measures now that we've hit the debt ceiling will expire sometime between July and September. So if you're looking for a period of time to bracket off on the calendar, that's going to be some potentially very tense and busy months as they approach that X date, as it's known. And the uncertainty there also makes it a little uncertain how quickly they're going to have to move. But we will see some more talk about this. We've obviously seen a lot of political discussion, as we saw in the State of the Union, um, and that will continue. But, you know, sometimes you see noise in front of you and um, talks will start going on behind closed doors, especially within the different party groups as they line up and figure out what they want their position to be. Right. And the pattern of Congress in recent decades, certainly recent years, is 
if there's a deadline, let's go up to it. Absolutely. One of our most popular charts at Bloomberg Government is just a list of the deadlines because those deadlines drive action, whether it's a program lapsing or something like the debt limit. Um, those tend to create must-pass bills that, by the way, are also attractive vehicles for other things to move along with them. So this is going to be one of the key deadlines, um, obviously, and will potentially overshadow a lot of the other discussion as they try to figure out what to do here. And there's a couple of bills for the federal workforce. I think Tim Kaine from Virginia has that bill to forever bury the idea of that Section F designation for certain federal senior executives. Yeah, and bills like that may get some discussion. They may even get some action in the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. And, you know, defense authorization may be an interesting time to raise that as an amendment. So we'll we'll see how proposals like that go. The House did pass a bill like that under Democratic control in the last Congress, but I'm not sure if Republicans will pick that up because they may like the idea of that flexibility if they take control of the White House and have more control two years from now. So that, that's an idea that a lot of the D.C. area representatives and Congress and senators in particular would like to see passed because it affects their workers directly. But um, the, the Schedule F thing is certainly a controversial thing in the minds of some folks. And what are the chances of that eight point, I guess, the FAIR Act with the 8.7 percent pay raise? It's interesting because there's bipartisan support for that idea year after year, yet somehow it never actually does become law some smaller amount of pay raise ends up being what feds get. Well, I mean, we're in an environment now where Republicans in particular on the House side are calling for curbing federal spending and and a salary increase like that might be a hard sell, especially if it's been hard even under the complete Democratic control we had in the last Congress. But that could be another thing that's brought up in different contexts. Um, Obviously, compromise is going to be the key thing to get anything, a spending bill across the line or or something that would perhaps fund a raise like that. But um, it, it may be a hard sell just given the current environment we're in. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. And there are some authorizations that are kind of important that take place, that need to take place before June, July or day X, correct? Well, they're more in the September 30th range, the, oh, the two okay. big ones we're watching. X this plus year. one. Uh, X plus one, exactly. So there are many things that are up for renewal this year, but the two that are top of mind for folks, one is the Farm Bill, which governs the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and farm subsidies and will be a big flashpoint because there there could be work requirements imposed on SNAP and other efforts to curtail some of the subsidies for farm systems. But that's going to be one of the marquee ones. The other one is for the Federal Aviation Administration, which um, obviously has been in the news a lot with the failure of NOTAM, the the system that sends messages to pilots, which led to that ground stoppage earlier this year, and then just general interest in, you know, what what experiences passengers and airlines and the aviation system has in general. So those two bills are two of the marquee ones, but there are a number of other programs that different committees will be taking a look at and deciding how to reauthorize and how to change as their dates come up for, for renewal. But both the Farm Bill and the FAA bill have mandatory aspects to them and in a must-pass nature that we might even have to look at extensions if they can't come to agreement by the expiration of those on September 30th. Right. The FAA has a couple of major modernization programs going on. Both of them seemed like endlessly long to get to the GPS navigation system, and then nobody ever heard of NOTAMs unless you were a pilot, and now everybody knows what it is. Interestingly, they had a modernization plan for that. No dates, no deadlines that I could find looking at the website to it. In fact, even the website had no dated pages. So I think the FAA is going to get a lot of scrutiny, is my sense. 
coming up. Absolutely. And we even saw the hearing last week in the Senate where the acting administrator was up there trying to answer questions about a lot of different things, not just no tams, but also near misses at airports that um, Ted Cruz, for example, brought up, and he's going to be a key player in the FAA legislation. So a lot will go into this bill. There's a lot of questions members of Congress on both sides of the aisle and uh, in both chambers will have. So uh, there's be, there will be a lot of scrutiny of that agency, which, as you know, is currently without a full-time administrator and has an acting one at the moment. Right. That's one, too. And speaking of acting and full-time, Danny Warfel did finally have his hearing before the Senate Finance Committee last week for commissioner of the IRS. That one appears to be in good shape. It does. Even after the hearing, some Republicans were saying that they are comfortable with him and would be willing to back him in a 51-49 environment that we're in. If the Democrats alone held together, they could get him over the line. But it seems like this one might be one with some more bipartisanship behind it with some R's and the yes column on that nomination, because I think they, they approach him as more of a technocrat that wants to go in there and, and run the agency. And, and so that gave comfort to some of them, um, even as they are going to argue vehemently over the next couple of years over the $80 billion infusion of money to that agency that was part of last year's reconciliation package. And that's more of an IOU than an actual appropriation, because anything that's over 10 years means it could go away in a given session. They could claw it back. It was multi-year funding when it was put into law. And one of the first bills that House Republicans had was to claw that money back or anything that hadn't been spent so far. So there could be efforts to curtail that in the future. But uh, you know, if nothing changes, that money is flowing toward the agency and, and towards hiring staff and changing systems. And I overlooked the fact that uh, you pointed out that the labor secretary has announced his impending departure, the first secretary level departure of the Biden administration. That's right. He's taken a job at the National Hockey League's Players Association. He's a longtime union person, and um, he's obviously became U.S. Secretary of Labor, and now he's going to this job. And um, so he'll be leaving sometime in March, I believe, and that will open a key vacancy. Uh, I think the deputy secretary will probably be in the mix, as will some other people, former members of Congress, even potentially who who left. Um, so that, that's going to be a key position to fill. Again, with the Senate in Democratic hands, it will be easier than if Republicans had control. But, um, you know, the Labor Department's involved in a lot of different policies that Republicans don't like, whether it's ESG rules or um, just general work place issues. So that's going to be a, a key position to fill. But as you note, as the first cabinet official to go, he's had some White House officials come and go and, and lower level folks as well. But um, that's yeah. that's the first cabinet secretary. To go. Well, if Marty Walsh goes back to Boston, which we presume he will, where he was mayor before you know being labor secretary, he can go to the Boards and Blades Club at the uh, new Boston Garden and not get in political trouble. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Back in 2016, Congress passed and President Obama signed into law the Administrative Leave Act. It was supposed to cap how long federal employees could stay on paid administrative leave. Backers at the time said that administrative paid leave was costing taxpayers too many millions of dollars a year. Well, now, more than six years later, agencies are still missing final regulations to make changes to federal leave policy. Here with the latest developments, though, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, do we have any movement yet on these regulations? Not yet, Tom. I think we're still waiting to see when OPM will actually issue these final regulations on the Administrative Leave Act. They did issue regulations for part of 
of the legislation back in 2018. And at the time now, five years, almost five years ago, they said they would at a later date issue regulations for the other two parts of the bill. But so far, we have not seen that come to fruition. Let's go back to the law itself. What does it actually say? I mean, what does it require? So the Administrative Leave Act would essentially create three new categories of paid administrative leave. That's paid leave that federal employees can take without using up their individual paid time off. And this is law that was included in the fiscal 2017 National Defense Authorization Act. And the type of leave it's supposed to create are weather and safety leave, investigative leave, and notice leave. What it would do is basically cap the number of days that federal employees can spend on paid administrative leave. It would have an initial cap of 10 days, which then can be extended incrementally up to a 90-day maximum. And that's essentially trying to encourage agencies to tighten up the timeline for conducting personnel investigations for federal employees. Those at the time when lawmakers enacted this bill, they said those uh, investigations could often go on for six months up to a year and a half, sometimes even longer. So it's basically encouraging agencies to just reduce the amount of time that federal employees are spending on on that leave. Right. There were cases of people being on paid administrative leave even longer than two or three years. There were some really crazy outlier cases. And, you know, the agencies churn through this thing and sometimes they never get around. It's easier to leave them on paid administrative leave than to resolve the case, which could end up in court or something. And so OPM has not done nothing, though, right? They've done some regulation on this. Right. They have issued regulations for weather and safety leave. That's one part of the Administrative Leave Act, and it basically lets federal employees take paid leave if there's an emergency situation, like severe weather or something like that. But for the other two types of leave included in the Administrative Leave Act, investigative leave and notice leave, those we don't have final regulations for yet. Initially in the act, there was a nine-month deadline to issue all of these regulations. But of course, now we are six years later, so it's beyond that initial deadline. And again, the investigative and notice leave, those two types of leave are for federal employees waiting a decision on from an agency on adverse personal action or who are under investigation. Yeah. So the rules for administrative leave are like on administrative leave. OPM has never been one to speed out regulations. I remember partial retirement or phased retirement. It took them about two or three years to come up with those rules. Why do they say it's taking so long? So Part of the issue for OPM, according to a spokesperson, is that it would conflict with something called rest and recuperation leave. This is a different type of leave that federal personnel who are overseas can use to recover from different types of events that occur in combat zones. And OPM basically says that issuing the regulations for administrative leave would prevent those employees from being able to take rest and recuperation leave. This is something where there was an amendment back in 2019 to try to fix that issue, but that ultimately wasn't passed or enacted. So OPM says in the meantime, they've been trying to work through some of those issues with agencies who are impacted, but they didn't share a timeline on whether or when they're going to issue these final regulations. And Also notably, it's not included in their regulatory agenda coming up. So it's just not listed in their plans for what they're going to issue regulations on coming up. 
and some of the advocacy groups that look out for federal employees have noticed this. You and I are not the only ones. And there's been some pushback here. I Yeah, there have been some very uh, vocal advocates of this bill who have expressed frustration and disappointment with OPM for not issuing the final regulations. They've said that the bill was, you know, really a bipartisan good government bill that, and something that because of the lack of final regulations, some agencies, at least anecdotally, are still misusing administrative leave. That's not every agency, but there are a handful that are still having issues or people staying on administrative leave for too long. The Senior Executives Association is one organization that partnered closely with the lawmakers of the original legislation. SEA Director of Policy and Outreach, Jason Briefel, explained why it's an issue. I'm aware of several anecdotal examples where senior executives have been put out on what would or should have been this kind of leave as the statute envisions. But because there were no OPM regulations on it, agencies just did whatever they have done in the past. There's no way to restore the trust of the American people and the federal government if we cannot do the basics for managing the workforce. And OPM is not providing agencies with the guidance and the clarity necessary. And are you seeing smoke signals, Drew, that OPM is going to come out with these? I mean, it looks like they're maybe thinking about it. They didn't give me a timeline or a reason why it wasn't included in their regulatory agenda. They said they're trying to work through some of the issues with agencies, as I said, who are impacted by rest and recuperation leave. But at this point, they didn't share a timeline for when some of this might actually change. And by the way, has anyone tallied up how much is spent each year on employee salaries for those on administrative leave? That is hard to say, Tom. There is some data, but it is a bit outdated from what is publicly available. There's a 2014 GAO report that says that at the time, there were 263 federal employees who had spent between one and three years on paid administrative leave, and that was costing the government $31 million a year in salary costs. That data now is about 10 years old, and that's actually that report is part of the reason that the Administrative Leave Act was passed, but there's no more recent data than that report. Well, the number hasn't gone down. We can probably be sure of that. So what I'm hearing is the best strategy for federal employees to go on administrative leave is do it the last three years before retirement. I guess guess that could be one way to look at it. Yikes. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 